It's good to be back up here in the pulpit. I want to thank you, Vince, for preaching for me for a couple of weeks, granting me a little bit of a rest and an opportunity to prepare for that Proverbs class. So thank you, brother, for filling the pulpit. You did a good job. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, page 1136. Romans chapter 12. So I was walking up this morning from my car. I met up with somebody and and he said, do you know what happened on January? I can't remember what day he said. I think he said 2nd or something like that. January 2nd, 2007. And I said, no, I, I don't remember. And he said, that's when you began preaching Romans. <laughs> wow. What that means is we are now entering into our fourth year in the book of Romans. This is our fourth year. I believe this is the 88th sermon in the book of Romans. We've had a number of interruptions, of course, along the way, some of them planned, some of them not. The extended treatment of prophecy growing out of chapter 11 and verse 36, which I believe was profitable for all of us and know it was in my heart and a number of you expressed it was profitable to you as well. And so I don't regret that detour a bit. But we are back in the book of Romans. We are in Romans chapter 12. We are going to be looking at verse 9, the second half of verse 9 this morning. But it was last year that was the last time we were there. And so if you're like me, you can't remember yesterday, let alone last year. And so I think it would be appropriate to spend a few minutes at the beginning and kind of review where we are and get us up to speed before we look at the second half of the ninth verse of the 12th chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Chapter 12 is the place in this letter where, where the book turns. There's a hinge pin, as it were, in this book. And actually that hinge pin is verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. And the whole book swings on that. Leading up to that section... Paul, in the most systematic and the most detailed way anywhere to be found in the whole Scriptures, including the New Testament, there's a presentation of what it means, salvation by grace through faith alone. The Apostle Paul lays it out like an attorney building his case, precept upon precept, argument upon argument, in a very systematic fashion. Until he comes to that final climax at the end of chapter 11 and verse 33. And he says, Oh, for the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. Wow. And that is the truth. When we begin to peer into the doctrines of grace, whereby God has set His mercy and grace upon wretched sinners who have no claim upon Him whatsoever, no basis under which they can come before Him and say, you should save me rather than Him, but can only come and throw ourselves on His mercy and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. On the basis of that, God saves. God saves. And when He saves... He transforms us. It is not merely a legal fiction. It is not merely something that occurs in the mind of God alone. It is something real that transpires in the human heart. The very life of God Himself takes up residence within us through His Holy Spirit and He transforms us. Our orientation changes. We, we go from pursuing sin to pursuing after righteousness. He captivates the affections of our heart. We go from loving ourselves and loving sin to loving the Christ above all else. The motivation changes for why we do what we do. And, beloved, the power within us changes. The ability to now resist sin resides within us. The ability to have victory over temptation now resides within us. God has made an amazing and transforming change in the human heart through grace 
accessed by faith alone. That is Paul's gospel. And so as he turns the corner here, entering into chapter 12, he begins to lay out in, again, his somewhat systematic way, what transformation should look like. Back in chapter 8 and in verse 29, he says we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is, we have been predestined by God to become like Jesus Christ. Well, what was Christ like? Paul begins to lay that out for us in some very specific areas of life. How it is we are to begin to emulate Christ through the power of the indwelling Spirit of God. Once we were spiritually dead, once we were in bondage to sin, but we have been rescued, we have been set free. We now pursue a different goal. We now have a different master whom we serve. God is actively, God is effectually working to transform us to the image of Jesus Christ, and he does it through his gospel. And we are not passive in this, by the way. This is not a passive transformation. This is not just sitting there and waiting for God to zap us and that somehow all things change. There is a very active component to this as we listen to the Word of God and begin to respond in faith to what He has said. The Spirit of God transforms our hearts. It's obedience to the Word of God that brings about this transformed life for those who know Jesus Christ. Let me read chapter 12 for you here. That'll help us to to kind of get into this. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who bless you. Or excuse me, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. A transformed life. Paul begins to spell out for us here in chapter 12. And verse I said, verses 1 and 2 are the hinge pin really for this whole book. And they, and they provide the, the key to unlocking this transformed Christian life. 
They are the theological reality that lies behind all the commands to live this way and not that way. It is not a matter of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It is not a matter of just, you know, biting the lower lip and toughing it out. It is the grace of God transforming us so that we begin to desire to live a different way and the power that's released in us begins to enable us to live as God would have us live. Paul gave us four keys back in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. How good's your memory? The first key to unlocking the Christian life, if you'll recall, was to remember something. It was to remember, verse 1, chapter 12, very mercies of God. That is to think back upon the gospel, that which had been laid out for us in systematic fashion, chapters 1 through 11. As we remember the mercies of God, it will begin to transform us. This is, this is grace-driven sanctification. This is gospel-based sanctification that we are talking about here. And as we remember the gospel, it begins to transform us so it is to remember something it is secondly to relinquish something that is to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to god to relinquish ownership because it has passed from ourselves to christ christ is now our lord jesus is lord right if a man will believe in his heart that god raised him from the dead and confess with his mouth that jesus is what Lord, he shall be saved. It is the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we relinquish ourselves to his lordship in the gospel that we begin to be transformed. Beyond that, we are to resist something. That is, we are to resist the world's system that seeks to crush down on us, not to be conformed to this world anymore, but to be transformed. And finally, the fourth key was to renew, that is, by the renewing of our mind as we take in massive quantities of the Word of God. This unleashes the transforming power of the Spirit of God in us that we can begin to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. This is all review. Nod your heads. That's good. That's good. It is all review. We see the power released in us as we begin to humbly appraise who we really are. Verses 3 through 8. The reality that we have been made part of a local body, a community of believers. We have been individually gifted, not for our own glorification, but for the benefit of of the body and the glorification of Christ himself who gives these good gifts. This is a practical outworking of this transformed life. Verses 3 through 8. Finally, beginning in verse 9, the transformed life reveals itself in a desire to love. In a desire to love people. To love people with an agape love, with a, with a love that, that serves other people, that counts other people as more important than ourselves. A, a love that costs us something. A love that Paul begins to detail for us here beginning in chapter 12, verse 9 and running through the end of the chapter. Love, we said last year, is a defining mark of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would say it is the defining mark of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That is, that we love first God and then others because. First John 4.16, God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. It is love that is the signature of what it means to be a new creature in Jesus Christ. And so Paul fleshes out for us here in a very practical way, beginning in verse 9, in a very challenging way, what it means to love with Christian love. Verses 9 through 21 don't yield a very readily discernible structure. There, there is not an, an easy structure to these verses. They're, they're very staccato in the way they're put together. They're just a whole series of commands. But the theme that underlies it all is love. It is all about love. 
And it is love to both those inside the church. You'll notice the use of the word one another several times. Verse 10, it's used. It's used also in verse 16. And it also speaks of all men. You can see that verses 17 and 18. So it's speaking about a love that is to manifest itself inside the local body, inside the fellowship of believers, and to those on the outside. That is, a Christian loves both those inside the church and those outside the church. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. It is to be characterized by a heart of love for both those in and outside the fellowship of the local church. And Paul will lay that out for us here. So as we were meditating and thinking upon all of these commandments for love, it seemed like what we were talking about here was a recipe. Food is near and dear to my heart. Perhaps that's the reason it looked like a recipe to me. But it began to sort of reveal itself to me as a recipe. A recipe, that is, that that it has various ingredients. Love has ingredients to it. And and in order for it to to taste good and smell good and, and to emulate the love of Jesus Christ, it needs to have these various ingredients as part of it. If you leave one ingredient out, the recipe will be a little bit off. You leave too many of them out and it'll be unrecognizable. And so that's as we began to look at this together, began to see this as Paul's recipe for love. These ingredients should characterize our love. And if they do, then our love will taste good. It will smell good. It will be appealing both to those inside the body and to those outside the body. Paul's recipe for love. You know, it's important to have quality ingredients in a recipe. If we try to cut a corner in a recipe, if you try to use cheap stuff in the recipe, then it doesn't come out right. Every Christmas Eve in our family, we celebrate Christmas Eve with a a bowl of New England fish chowder. New England fish chowder. It is a family tradition, and the recipe goes back multiple generations. And the recipe was was put together multiple generations ago back in Maine, and it was for fishermen who were going out into the cold winter to fish on the Atlantic. And so the recipe is high in fat because fat keeps you warm when the weather is cold. So this recipe calls for cream and butter and a lot of it. And that's what makes it so delightful. New England fish chowder made with skim milk and and oil, not cream, oil, right? You've seen that ad, right? Do you want cream? Do you want oil? Made with margarine, oleo would not be worth eating. It would be ruined. A good fish chowder has a lot of cream and a lot of butter. High quality ingredients. Our love has to have high-quality ingredients. And the Apostle Paul lays them out for us here, and there are 12 of them. 12 main ingredients that go into a recipe. And you know what? Going through this together, and we will be going through this together for some weeks to come here, this is a way to to provide some some self-analysis. This is really just designed to evaluate. This is not for you to evaluate your wife. You got that? This is not for you to evaluate your wife or for her to evaluate you. This is for you to evaluate. Who said amen? That's good. That's somebody who's listening and applying the word of God. I like that. This is for you to evaluate yourself. The word of God is a mirror into which you may look to evaluate your own heart. So it's not about your wife. It's not about your husband. It's not about your children. Children, it's not about your parents. Friends, it's not about each other. It's all about you in that sense. This is a way to evaluate your love. Your love. Does your love taste good? Does your love smell good? Is the recipe that you are using for love in your life, is it the divine recipe? Twelve main ingredients. The first one here in verse 9 is sincerity. 
This is all introduction, by the way. Hope I get through this. Okay, here we go. Sincerity, verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. Literally, what he is saying here is, is that love is to be genuine or love is to be sincere. It is to be a genuine love. It is to be a sincere love. He uses the, the reference here to the hypocrite, which was the, which was the name given to the actor in a Greek play. He would put on a mask and then he would go into character and he would speak and act like the character of the person behind the mask. And he, he was called the hypocrite. Well, that, that image, that metaphor was, was brought over into the New Testament, but not in a positive way. It was brought over in a negative way. And that's, that's how it's come down to you and I today. When we speak of a hypocrite, that's, we're not saying something nice. Okay, to be a hypocrite is not something nice. And what Paul is saying here in the most simple terms, he's exhorting the believers here in Rome, and by extension he's exhorting us that we are not to turn the church into a stage on which we act as if we truly love one another when in fact we do not. It's that simple. It's that simple. Our love should not be fake. It should not be false. It should be, it should be sincere. It should be genuine. And so as we evaluate our own love, we can look at this and, and we can say, are we really being sincere or not? First ingredient, sincere. Second ingredient, discerning. And that's where we really pick it up now this morning. The second ingredient is discerning. Notice in the second half of Verse 9, Paul says, Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. I broke down this concept of discerning love for you. It's on the back of your bulletin. And I use just three simple words to do it. They're the words contrast, complacency, and community. Contrast, complacency, and community. And I want to look with you and begin to tease out with you the implications of this very strong statement here where Paul says, Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. This is a very strong expression that Paul uses here. Very strong expression. It conveys in the word abhor, the word translated for you, abhor, and I think some translations pick it up and translate it as hate. It picks up the idea of a passionate hatred. It is a passionate hatred. It is, it is not a mere dislike. It is a settled, burning, passionate hatred of evil. And in contrast to it, it is a zeal for what is good. A zeal for what is good. Paul is using a very strong, very strong verb here, translated in the New American Standard of Whore. Speaks of an intense inward loathing of evil. Deep down settled hatred. You know, at first glance, this seems kind of contradictory, doesn't it? I thought we were talking about love. I thought we were talking about love. If, if we're talking about love, it, it seems incongruous to be using terminology of passionate hatred in the same context of love. At least that's what our world would tell us. That's what our society would say, wouldn't they? I mean, for many, many people today, love is a very squishy emotion. It's, it's, it's the idea of tolerance. No discernment at all. It, it's how dare you speak about me. That's not loving. Loving accepts everything. Loving is tolerant of everybody. Loving wraps their arms around everything and everybody and says in some squishy emotional way, some sentimentality, I love you. It tolerates. It even approves of all kinds of moral evil in the name of of love. The very idea that we are called to hate something is considered today by most people to be the exact opposite of what it means to love. Isn't that right? But biblical love, folks, is not a mere sentimentality. On the contrary, biblical love is discerning. 
It is discerning. It is so passionately devoted to another person's welfare that it recoils in abhorrence at the slightest intrusion of evil. It will make no peace with it. Love hates evil. Love hates evil. And it hates evil maybe even worse than I hate cockroaches. And I hate cockroaches. Years ago, when we first moved to Texas, we moved into a small apartment. My young family, we were starting to attempt to attend seminary, and we moved in to this little cracker box place, got all of our stuff settled in, and we noticed there were bugs. Now, we were born and brought up in Massachusetts in the New England area, and we're now living in Fort Worth. And we knew about bugs, but we didn't know about these kind of bugs. Never seen them before. So Carol said, would you go out to the hardware store and get something to kill these bugs? They're kind of annoying me. I open the cupboard. They're all over everything in the cupboard. They're in the kids' crib crawling on the kids. I walk into the kitchen, I flick on the switch, and they're really kind of annoying. And I said, I agree with you. They're really kind of annoying. So I went to the hardware store, and I walked down the aisle looking at insecticides, looking at pictures until I could find a picture on the bottle that matched the picture of one of these little rascals that I was quick enough to kill. And it said, roach spray. I paused, and I thought to myself, roach spray. You mean like cockroach? (laughs) I grew up in New England. We don't have cockroaches. In fact, if you have cockroaches in New England, it's it's a statement about the conditions under which you live, the filthiness of your living environment, the squalor in which you live. We were horrified. We were shocked. I could not tell Carol that her house was being overrun with cockroaches. I said, honey, they're just some kind of bug. Don't worry, I'll get rid of them. And I went on a rampage. I hate the things. And I became good at it, Jeremy. I was good at it. Hate these things. Well, I hate cockroaches and God hates evil. God hates evil. Do you understand that it was for evil that God sent his own son to die? Is as a direct result of evil that God sent His Son to die. God hates evil. He hates it. Biblical love, folks, it requires us to loathe evil. To loathe it. But not only to loathe it, in converse, we are to cling tightly. Look again at the verse to what is good. Do you see that? Abhor, loathe, hate with the deepest, intense, passionate hatred of evil, but conversely, cling to good. Cling to good. This verb translated cling to could also be translated be glued to or be bonded to. It's used significantly in several other places in the New Testament. You can just jot these down and check them on your own, but It's spoken in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 5. It's spoken there or used there to speak of a husband cleaving to his wife. Cleaving to his wife. It's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16 to speak of the act of sexual intimacy. Same verb. And it's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17 of our union with Jesus Christ. Same verb translated cling to here. So you get the idea that what we are talking about here is the closest possible relationship where the two are brought together and in the marriage relationship it's spoken of as being what? One. Our union with Christ is one. We become one with Christ. So what Paul is talking about here is that we are to passionately hate and loathe evil, and we are to be absolutely glued or bonded or one with that which is good. There is no greater distinction that could be drawn. By the way, these are 
present participles abhor and cling here in the Greek, present participles, which simply means for us that he is not talking about a single act of consecration. He's not saying that somewhere in your life you should have abhorred evil and and clung or been glued to good and that was it. You know, look back somewhere in your life to your salvation event and moment and say, that's it. Paul's saying, no, 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 this is an ongoing reality for the Christian. There is a constancy here to us. We are to be continually abhorring evil and we are to continually be glued to that which is good. Some time ago, I heard a man pray, Lord, help me to learn to hate the things that you hate and to love the things that you love. Lord, help me to learn to hate the things that you hate and to love the things that you love. What does God hate? What does God hate? And what does God love? The answer can only be found in the Word of God for these things. We have time, do not have time this morning to to undergo a thorough study of that. But let me just remind you of a few things. You can check these on your own. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16 through 19. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19 lays out a number of things that God absolutely hates. He hates. God hates haughty eyes, we are told. That is looking down your nose on someone. God hates a lying tongue. God hates liars and lying. God hates deadly hands, we're told. That is, murderers and violent people. God hates depraved hearts. Those who are so defiled that they become purveyors of wickedness. And I cannot help but think of those involved in the pornography trade. God hates delinquent feet. That is, he hates those who follow after evil, those who run to it, the proverb says, chase after it. God hates a false witness, those who would perjure themselves in order to injure another person. And God hates, according to Proverbs 6 and verse 19, a factious person, one who would divide the people of God. These are the things God hates. And these are the things, beloved, that we should abhor. We should loathe. There's no place for them in our lives. None. Conversely, God loves things. God loves. According to Isaiah 61, verse 8, God loves justice. God loves justice. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, God loves kindness. Leviticus 19, verse 34, God loves the weak and the vulnerable. Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, God loves the sons of Israel. God loves the children of Israel. Romans chapter 8 and verse 39, God loves the believer. It's you and me. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, God loves truth, righteousness, purity, and moral excellence. John chapter 5 and verse 20, God loves His own Son. Cling to that which is good. Love the things that God loves. Pursue after them. Let it flavor your love. Contrast, beloved. There is a, there is a dramatic contrast between abhorring evil and clinging to good. Secondly is complacency. Second word, complacency. No person ever hated or feared sin too much. Let me say that to you again. No person ever hated or feared sin too much. You cannot overdo it in this realm. British Bible commentator William Barclay said, quote, Our one security against sin is our being shocked by it. Our one security against sin is our being shocked by it. 
But it is impossible to become shocked by sin when we have become desensitized to it. And that has occurred for all of us to one degree or another. We have become desensitized. Desensitized. How? It is by the repeated exposure to evil. The repeated exposure to evil. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. In my family, there are some who like to walk barefoot. They can walk around the house barefoot. They can walk outside barefoot. They can walk across the hot driveway barefoot. They can walk out where the goat head thorns are barefoot, it seems, and it doesn't bother them. And then there are me. <laughs> Actually, are not me. There only is me <laughs> or something like that. I am a shoe-wearing person. Shoe-wearing people have very white feet and very tender skin. <laughs> My feet never see the light of day. That's right. When the shoes come off, it's bedtime and the lights are out. <laughs> it's dangerous if your feet see the sun. I want you to know that. Well, what that means is I, I can't walk barefoot anywhere. It bothers me to do that desensitized. That's how they can do it. They become desensitized. <laughs> they walk everywhere, they, you know, and it, the bottom of their feet just get hard, I guess. Hard to sin. <laughs> but not me. My feet are soft. Uh, so we're having a little fun with it, but it's the truth of it here. We become desensitized to sin when, we, when we're enmeshed in it. It's all around us, folks. It is everywhere around us. We live in a culture of death and violence. Fifty million babies. Fifty million. Assisted Suicide, once thought unheard of, now being discussed as a viable option. So the old can be moved out of the way because they're too expensive for our health care system. Euthanasia. Let's get, rid of the, let's get rid of the weak and the infirm. They use up too much valuable health care dollars. Kill them off. First it becomes their duty, and then later it will be done to them. Do not think this cannot happen. This is the direction we are going. We are living in a, in a nation that is in moral freefall. Embryonic stem cell research. Let's create children and then kill them. For their medical value. Let's harvest them. 13 billion dollar U.S. porn industry. That's more revenue than is generated by the three major TV networks. Did you know that? We pour this filth out. Hollywood. Filth and violence being poured out of that place. And here's where it gets really bad. Followers of Jesus Christ, we're, we're financing it. We're funding it. We're buying it. Things that once would have scandalized us no longer scandalize us. They don't. We have grown desensitized to evil. We have become a nation that does not know how to blush any longer. Abhor what is evil, he says. Loathe it. But in order to abhor it, beloved, you have to know what it is. 
abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Complacency is a deadly disease. Deadly disease. It will dull our moral conscience. But it's not just individual complacency. This is this leads us to our final point here, community. Individual complacency with regard to evil leads to communal corruption. Individual complacency leads to communal corruption. Just take a look at the history of the nation of Israel. Take a look at the history of the nation of Israel. Why did God deal so severely with Achan in Joshua 7? Why did God deal so severely with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? The answer to that question is because of the understanding that it is individual complacency and corruption that will ultimately corrupt the community, the people of God. To make way for sin in the community is to bring it into destruction. And so to get that point across, as the people entered into the promised land, God dealt severely with Achan. And as the church began to launch out in the book of Acts, God dealt severely with Ananias and Sapphira. Those are examples for us to learn from. This abhorrence of evil and this clinging to good, this is, this is not merely a personal pursuit. We have a responsibility to the body. There is a responsibility to the body. Each and every one of us, we are in community together here in the body, and thus we are interconnected and we have a corporate responsibility with regard to this. This whole section, there is, there is no avoiding in chapter 12 that he is talking about community. Verse 5. For we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. There is a community going on here. And the abhorrence of evil and the clinging to good is to be carried on at a personal level, but it is to go beyond that. It is to be carried on at a corporate level. Carried on at a corporate level. When Jesus Christ saved you, it was through a personal encounter with the living God, but it did not end there. Your salvation placed you into the body of Jesus Christ and made you related to me and me to you and one to another. Back in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 9, Cain asked a question. It's kind of an impertinent question when he asked it. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that question, by the way, is a resounding yes. Yes. To the ancient Israelite, hearing the account read, he would know immediately the answer to that question. Am I my brother's keeper? Answer, yes, you are. You absolutely are. Agape love is an unselfish, it is a costly love. It will go to any length to attain the well-being of its object. Therefore, we must abhor evil and cling to what is good in each other. In each other. In community together. Brothers and sisters in Christ. What this means is that we need to care enough to confront sin in the corporation, in the, in the corporate body, in the, in the camp. Sin in the camp must be confronted. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Beloved, there are, there are two extremes when it comes to confronting one another in sin that must be avoided. 
The first is to sit back in your easy chair with a laser pointer and point out the flaws and specks in everyone's eyes. Right? Maybe I'll just get a big chair and sit up here. That is not what we're talking about. That is not what we're talking about. The other extreme is to say it's none of my business. It's none of my business. You know, that's up to them. It's none of my business what they're doing. Oh, yes, it is. It is our business. We are in community together. So we must avoid the extremes of sitting there self-righteously laser pointing out everybody's transgressions. And then we must avoid the extremes of blinding our eyes and saying, I don't care what happens to anybody else. It's just me. It's my family. That's all I care about. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Of a friend. The proper approach is the approach taken by the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians Chapter 2, verse 4. Don't turn, just listen. Paul says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Why did Paul write the hard letter to the church at Corinth? Because he was angry with them? Because he wanted to hurt them? Because he... He wanted to call out their flaws. No, he did it out of a heart of love and compassion for them. That they might understand and turn from their sin. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Let me ask you a question this morning to think about. Do you have anyone in your life who will wound you? Do you have anyone, anyone who is faithful enough to be willing to take the risk to wound you? To come alongside you and to say the hard things to you because they love you. Because they hate whatever expression of evil they see in your life and they they cling to the good and they want to help you to overcome and have victory in this area. Is there anybody, anybody who will tell you the truth? And maybe a second question that goes with it, are you that kind of person who would be a friend to someone else? It's easy to come here on a Sunday morning and put on our smiley Christian faces, right? How are you doing this morning, Pastor? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Did you have a good week? Yeah, I had a good week. How about you? Yeah, I had a good week. We've just said nothing. Inside, I'm dying or you're dying. And we won't. We won't let anyone in. We won't let anyone in. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. I told you that this section of the scripture is is about self-appraisal. Not about appraising someone else and how are they doing, but appraising ourselves. How are we doing? What is the flavor of our love? What does it smell like? How does it taste? And as we go through this together, we all fall short. We all fall short. We all fail. There is no one here that can, check up, that can check them all off, tick them all off, and say, yeah, I do that, I do that, I do that, I do that, I do that. You're a liar. There must be one in here about lying. <laughs> we fall short. We fall short. That's where the gospel comes in. That's where the gospel comes in. It doesn't just save us once somewhere in the past. It continues to save us moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, until Christ takes us home. You need the gospel. I need the gospel. The shortcomings, the failures that we see are not to drive us to this point of despair. They are to drive us to the cross of Jesus Christ. 
to recognize there His forgiveness, to receive anew His grace, to wash our hearts clean in His Word and to get up in the power of the Holy Spirit and begin to walk again in the light. I'm not looking to beat you up. Well, yes, I am. Well, no, I'm not. I mean, Paul's doing what he's doing and I'm just trying to be faithful. I'm trying to get you and me to take a really serious look at things. How's the flavor of your love this morning? How is the flavor of your love? you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ personally, if there has never been a time in your life where you have bowed the knee before Him, acknowledging your sin against Him, your rebellion, the fact that you deserve eternal punishment in hell, and called out upon Him to save you, There has never been that point in time. Today is the day. Today is the day of salvation. Humble your heart and call out to Christ to save you. Earlier this morning, we read Psalm 139 and as I was praying that Grief just washed over me. Grief for those women who have suffered at the hands of abortion. I know in a crowd this size that there are some here. Let me say to you that the grace of God in Christ Jesus washes you clean. He forgives you. And He will restore your life. If you have been laboring under that guilt, I want you to know freedom today. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. The embarrassment level, I would never do that to you. But I would say to you that if you've been laboring under that guilt, that's a deep, dark secret of your past. You need to, you need to talk to someone. So they can open the Scriptures with you and show you the grace of God that you might know cleansing and forgiveness. Let today be that day for you. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, I thank You for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ whose sacrificial death on our behalf on Calvary's cross covers all of our sin, past, present, and future. That He transforms us when we will humble our heart and embrace Him by faith. The life of God begins within. O Lord, extend Your grace this morning, I pray. And work in the hearts of your people as well, our Father, for, for we fall and so easily slip up. Oh Lord, uh, heal us and we will be healed. In Jesus' name, amen.